Welcome to the Jeff Duden Show. I am Jeff Duden, expert entrepreneur and brand builder. I unpack experiences from today's proven visionaries, action takers, and business athletes to understand the perspective, decisions, and fundamentals that can be applied to your life. Topics include pursuit of learning, health and wellness, leadership, entrepreneurship, and much more. And away we go. Welcome to the first episode of The Jeff Duden Show. I am Jeff Duden, your host, and I'm so excited to be here today bringing you the first of many Jeff Duden Show podcast episodes. You will learn that on The Jeff Duden Show, we are about unpacking the uncommon experiences of uncommon people and hearing their stories and sharing their journeys so that we can inform our path with their path. And we go all the way back to the beginning to understand, you know, what, what, what did these people do uh, to lead them to the path to where they are today? And today, I am so excited to start with an expert on the concept of purpose and living an on-purpose life, Kevin McCarthy. And Kevin is um, attended Lehigh University, where he completed his undergraduate degree in business and economics. Later, he attended the Darden School on the grounds of the University of Virginia, where he earned his MBA. Kevin is currently the Chief Leadership Officer of On Purpose Partners, a business strategy advisory firm that serves CEOs and CLOs, which is Chief Leadership Officers, based out of sunny Winter Park, Florida. Kevin founded On Purpose Partners in 1983. His books include The On Purpose Person, The On Purpose Business Person, Fit for Leading, and The Chief Leadership Officer, Increasing Wealth So Everyone Profits. Kevin is personally known to me but also known by his peers, clients, and audience for being authentic, inspiring, entrepreneurial, intelligent, and creative. Please join me in wel welcoming Kevin McCarthy. Thank you, Very great to be with you, and uh, I'm excited about this wonderful new podcast that you're doing. I just think, uh, you know, I'm, I, I have learned so much in just talking with you, so this will be a mutual feeding of the souls. How's that? That sounds great. I'm, I'm excited to do it. And any time that we can uh, talk to somebody in our lives who's, who's been introspective and extrospective and, and really unpacked something that can help us all, like this concept of purpose, uh, is time well spent. And I so much look forward to that today with you. I know in the time that we've spent together, you've made an incredible difference in my life and the on-purpose person was something that I found was introduced to me many years ago by our good mutual friend David Zierfoss who was the president of Husqvarna North America and led them uh, to really domination in North America from 19 million dollars in sales to over 500 million dollars in sales over a over his career so uh, he shared the on-purpose person with me and I, I diligently used the book and I went through the exercise and I, I still incorporated into my thinking today. So I'm very excited to bring this to our audience. Kevin, why don't we start going way back and on, on our show, what we look to do is, is really break it into three parts. The first part is going all the way back and where did people grow up and what were their early formative experiences that they had, entrepreneurial or otherwise? Who were the people that walked in their life with, with them? And so we'd, we'd love to go back and just hear a little bit about that. And then we'll go into kind of your midlife where you, we all make those decisions that transition us from how we started to, to where, we, where we ultimately are today. And then, and then at the end of it, you know, share your wisdom. How did it, how did it end? And what was the final chapter of the story as, as you became a professional and, and, you know, what's the impact you make on the world? So that's, that's how we're going to lay it out. So if you're comfortable, I'd love to go all the way back and, and hear a little bit about how you grew up and, and where it all started for you. Sure. I, I grew up in Bethel Park, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Pittsburgh. Uh, my, my mother taught school. My father was in ins uh, commercial insurance uh, called surety bonding. And, and uh, you know, I, I was a kid who 
uh, went to a private school. My parent, my mother taught in the public school system, and she said, I don't think it's right that the kids should have to have their mom looking over their shoulder, particularly through middle school. So my father and mother pulled their resources, both of them working, and they sent my brother and me to a private school that's truly called Shady Side Academy. And it was at the time, it was an all-boys school. Today it is co-ed. I was in the, the president of the, the last all-male graduating class. Uh, but it was in those early years, in third grade, fourth grade, when I would commute from one side of town to where this school was, to where Shadyside was, uh, I literally, my father would drive us in the mornings, drop us off. We had long commutes in the mornings. And then on the way back, I'd get a school bus to a bus stop, from a bus stop to a uh, to, to downtown Pittsburgh, where I would then take a streetcar and I would ride that home because our home was right behind a streetcar line. And then I would walk that little distance uh, about five houses away from the streetcar stop. One of the things that's very interesting about that is there were two things that I think were very formative for me in that, Jeff. And, and that was, one, the idea of being extraordinarily independent at a fairly young age where you had to think on your feet. You know, today's world, you wouldn't think of putting a third grader uh, on public transportation, having them wait in a downtown area by themselves. <laughs> you know, it almost sounds like child abuse today. I, I don't think that flies very well. Yeah, I, uh, but, even you know, for, especially for helicopter parents, right? Right. And, and so, you know, but, but the, the other side of the coin is my father and mother had, they were, they were people everywhere along the way that I knew that if I had a problem, I could talk to this person. So they had help for me all the way along. And, it, and so it was kind of an interesting part of it, but it developed for both my brother. And the first, time, the first year I did it, it was my brother and, and I were doing this together. And then eventually my brother went from fifth grade to sixth grade, and then I was by myself. And, and, and But we learned a certain amount of, I, I won't say street smarts isn't really the right word, but we learned how to deal with things that were coming our way and how to work on the fly. So along with that, in the mornings, whenever I would, sometimes we got to the point where eventually I would ride the school bus. My father, if we got there on time, he could drop us off at a school bus stop and then we could take the rest of the journey. If we missed the school bus, then he had to take us all the way. So uh, what I recognized is on that school bus, a lot of those kids didn't have access to candy. And I did because I lived real close. I was in the suburbs, but the middle class suburbs. And near my house, within walking distance, was a Ben Franklin 5 and 10. So I would get my 25 cents allowance. I would go down to the 5 and 10. I would buy 25 cents worth of candy. I would eat half of it, and half of it I would take on the school bus. And I would turn that 12, let's say that 13 cents, I would double it by, well, I'd, by five, I would take a jawbreaker that I'd buy for a nickel, I'd sell it for a quarter. I'd get a piece of bubble gum that I'd get for a penny, I'd sell it for a nickel. So I was making really good profits on that. My brother was doing the collections whenever I needed any problems at school. And I, I started making some money and developing some serious cavities. <laughs> but my parents covered that overhead. I didn't see that as an expense of the business. <laughs> but I sort of fell in love with the idea of that. And, and the other thing that was nice is because I was at a school where it was a, there were a lot of very wealthy families there. I mean, I went to school with a, a, a kid whose father was the chairman of the board of H.J. Hines. Another kid's father was uh, a good friend of mine. His father was the president of what is now PNC Corp. Uh, U.S. Steel Corporation, Gulf Oil, uh, PPG Industries. I mean, at the time, Pittsburgh was one of the leading um, capital, you know, corporate headquarters cities in the United States. So I was, I saw these friends of mine's fathers that were extraordinarily successful business people, and, and I kind of loved the idea of business. So that's kind of where that began to, that seed kind of planted in me. It is said that an early entrepreneurial experience is a foreshadow of future entrepreneurial excess. And I think getting those entrepreneurial juices flowing early, having some challenges, having some setbacks. Uh, share with me a little bit about uh, your soda business. I know that <laughs> that you so you started in candy. You were in sugary treats at I, an early age. I still am. And then uh, <laughs> as a enough. consumer, as a yeah. consumer. <laughs> well, fair enough. You know, you got to keep the industry going. So uh, and then you you vertically integrated basically into sodas. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, 
I'm the class president. I was the class president. My nickname was the resident president. That's what it said in the, the yearbook whenever I graduated. Uh, but I, I'm an eighth grader. I've got, there's 70 kids in my class. And, you know, we're trying to do stuff. and We don't have any money. It sounds sort of funny because, I mean, there was so much wealth around that school that when I look back on it. But from my point of view, I didn't know, maybe ask the parents or whatever. But I decided I was going to do something to raise money for our, our treasury, for our class. So I had this idea that and, and I wanted Coca-Cola products to be offered at the school, which they weren't. It was milk or water. So I met with the, I actually, you know, I'm eighth grade president. I call up the local Coca-Cola bottling general manager and say, hi, my name is Kevin McCarthy. I'm the class president at Shadyside Academy. At that time, it's in Fox Chapel is where the middle school was. And, and, and I was, you're an eighth grader. I'm an eighth grader. Did you have yeah. a deep voice yet? or, or No, did, I didn't. Did you, uh, did you sound like an eighth grader? I sounded like an eighth grader. Oh, okay. So, I mean, I call this guy and, he's, and I said, you know, but because I said I'm an eighth grader at Shadyside Academy and, and I'd like to see if I can get a Coke. You know, how can I get Coca-Cola here? And the guy says, well, I'll come out and meet you. Again, this, it's a different world. It's 1967, 68, you know, where just adults, you didn't have the sort of paranoia that you have today and rightful paranoia. Uh, unbeknownst to the school, this guy shows up um, and, you know, I meet him at the front of the school. We sit down and have a conversation. He says to me, um, as long as you can get me a one permission from the school two a place where I can secure a fountain there's water and I can store a CO2 tank. I will give you the cups and your first tank of CO2 and the syrup you need for your first inventory. And I'll get you started. And that's what it's going to take. So with that, I went to the headmaster of the school and said, I've struck this deal with the Coca-Cola bottling group here in Pittsburgh. And I would like to get access to the janitorial closet that's right off the hall and right by the uh, lunchroom. And he says, looks at me and he asks a few clarifying questions, which I answer. Then he asks some logistical questions, which I answer, like, how are we going to make sure this doesn't get spilled? And what are you going to do to transport it? And it's cups because there weren't cans. Uh, and and yeah, I said, we'll make these things in shop, these trays in shop that will hold them so that they're, you know, we can do it. And okay and i don't want to line there i said fine we'll have people at the table designated they'll come and they'll take the orders they'll bring them and we'll do a table at a time and so the long and the short of it is that year we ended up getting the the coca-cola bottling soda the the, the soda fountain set up and uh, our treasury swelled to almost a thousand dollars wow yeah i mean we made a ton of money and uh so from that point on, I mean, I had a class treasury that we could do parties. We didn't charge dues. You know, other other groups were charging a dollar a year for dues. Oh, I mean, we were we were rocking it. I mean, we put on a party. We put on a party. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we dance. We'd have higher bands. I mean, we our class had the best parties because of that because we had money to do it. So that was sort of that experience. And then I eventually tried to sell the Coca Cola franchise to the class behind me, but the school wouldn't let me. They took it over. Uh, so that was my first experience with government. <laughs> <laughs> well, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, yeah. and uh, there's a lesson I've learned is is don't leave the last negotiation out. Make sure you negotiate it all the way through. So, uh, yeah. you know, that's, well, what, what can I say? It was a great lesson, though, I mean, in terms of you know, thinking it through. And then I, I eventually took some of that money and then we ended up making beer steins for the alumni. OK. You know, with the school because they didn't have the beer steins that you would have like colleges have. So I sure. made those up in blue and gold and uh, would go out in inventory of those. And uh, the school eventually took that over as well. <laughs> I, mean, I was like the, the entrepreneur the, for the school. And then they would just uh, if only I could have sold out. You know, that was the idea back then, if, uh, which is co pretty common today where you sell out. But uh, didn't happen for me. Well, you, you are the entrepreneur in residence, and uh, I'm, I'm, you're better off today for it, I'm sure. I am. I am. Yeah. So where did it go from there as you grew up? Uh, were you uh, in athletics? I understand you were a tennis player. Yeah, well, in, in high school, I played football for a while, and then I realized that uh, football and tennis don't go well together because your knees and your back start to hurt. 
And uh, so I decided after my sophomore year to just focus in on tennis. But I, I played some basketball, you know, the traditional types of sport other than I did play baseball when I was younger, but I started playing tennis. And I, I really fell in love with tennis and I was on the tennis team and, and played um, all through uh, high school and then also in college and in college I also picked up so I played college tennis then I also picked up the game of squash in, in um, at Lehigh and was uh, captain of the squash team uh, played on the tennis team and had you know great experiences with that I mean those are athlete as you well know based on your, your, you know your new book which is just great love the new book um, thank you the, one of the things, that, this idea of a business athlete that you talk about so nicely, I, I really do say that business, um, sports is a microcosm of life, and it also gives a lot of those life lessons translates translate into business. And so it, it's this wonderful fluidity between the two of them uh, of, of sort of business and sports that I just think it teaches you discipline. It teaches you teamwork. Even though tennis is an individual sport, there is doubles. Um, there's I did play football and I did play some basketball. But you know, those team sports, you learn to be strategic, learn plays, um, all of those sorts of things uh, that are just so vital to what it takes to be a successful, I think, entrepreneur. Um, Why, well, when we're working with franchise companies and where people say, what do you look for in, in a franchise, uh, franchisee or somebody that you want to partner with in business? And it really is, I've boiled it down to three things. Number one is grit, which is their perseverance and their willingness to do whatever it takes to be successful for as long as it takes to be successful. Everything takes a lot longer than you originally uh, think it will. And, and, twice, and three times as much money. Three times as much money, and, and, and it's, it, it's, it's not a straight path. You're going to have detours and challenges along the way, and the last 10% of anything takes 50% more effort. So excellence is really attained uh, through you know, just grit. And the second thing is intellectual humility which sports also teaches you, <laughs> meaning sometimes it's not going to be your way. It's got to be the team's way or the coach's way. And then uh, really diplomacy, the ability to resolve conflicts in a healthy manner. And if I, I know that, uh, you know, there's there's certain times in business where we uh, we've got to maintain our angles and keep our leverage. And there's there's times where business is tough and you have to be tough and you can't be taken advantage of. Uh, but moreover, uh, what I found is that I, I have, people has, have given me $10 for every dollar that I have been able to take off of somebody under duress. And if you can find a way for people to win and provide more value. Uh, so these are things I think as you talk about athletics and being formative to business, I think these are fundamental lessons that we get hit with every day competing in sports. Yeah, and I mean, one of the nice things for me is I was able to continue my entrepreneurial ways because uh, starting at about age 12, I, I uh, started helping a tennis pro give tennis lessons. And then from that, he started hiring me to work with some of his people. And uh, things just kind of grew uh, from there to where I ended up uh, really being a tennis pro, ultimately a, a United States Professional Tennis Association member. Uh, taught tennis professionally through high school and college, and uh, even after college uh, for a couple of years. So, uh, and what was interesting about that again, you have to learn to customer service. Uh, you have to learn people skills because uh, when you're teaching somebody, uh, you need to understand why they want to learn how to play tennis, what they're trying to do with it, to analyze what's going on. So there's a technical aspect to it, and there's a there's a people aspect to it. It's very important. And then there's the business side of it as well. Uh, you know, if you're not, if, if somebody books you for a half an hour lesson and you give them an hour, uh, the next person who takes a half an hour lesson is kind of ticked off because they didn't get an hour. So you learn a certain amount of fairness, even though you'd like to continue to work with that person, you need to cut it off at that half hour or 35 minutes or whatever it is. Otherwise, you're not being fair to everybody else and, and or they don't book hour lessons with you. That's right. So it's, uh, th there's a lot of little lessons that go on with all of that. So, so now you're moving uh, 
out of high school and into college or into adulthood, uh, other than a direct family member, was there anyone that crossed your path during that time that really made an impact in your life? Well, I mean, I, I, as I said, my father certainly started a business in 1969 in the, in the insurance business. And, and so I had that as a little bit of a role model, although he was sort of transitioning from uh, an, an insurance agency working with uh, the, the company itself, the insurance company, to his own ind- independent agency. And he made that transition very successfully because he had built a reputation. And so it, for him, it was a continuity of a professional service being offered, if you will. Uh, other than that, I mean, I had, um, I, I had these kids that were their, their fathers that were somewhat, but you, know, you don't start Heinz Corporation. Uh, I, so I sort of saw the big end of the end game of a big corporation, which actually to this day, I, I don't really want to be. I never wanted to be in the big corporate world. It just never suited me. I understood that about myself. I, I wanted to, the independence of being on my own, being able to express who I am uh, in that business, because I do think business is an amazingly creative place. Uh, uh, and that creativity gets rewarded with uh, with pay. Uh, so you don't you don't have to be a starving artist in business, uh, but I had an opportunity uh, when I was working at a tennis club outside of Pittsburgh called the Hidden Valley Tennis Club in Upper St. Clair, and there was a tennis pro there who had been the he was the owner of the business. He and his wife had started the business, and when they were building it, I pestered him to hire me. I was about 17 years of age. He told his wife, "I'll never hire a teenager," but he ended up hiring me. Uh, and his name was Bob Bennett, and Bob had been the national sales manager for Alcoa Corporation in their tin division. And Bob just had a great personality about him, but he was also a great leader from the point of view, and I'll just share this quick story, is stringing tennis rackets. I was a tennis player, but I didn't know how to string tennis rackets. And in Bob's indoor tennis club, there was a pro shop, and there was a tennis stringer, and I, I said to him, I'd, I'd like to learn how to string rackets. And he said, oh, I'll show you. So he pulls out a racket that's a customer's racket, and he shows me how to string it. And then he says, now I want, I want you to do one, and I'm going to watch you, and I'll walk you through it. And I did that. And then he walked away and said, now you do the next one. And so that I was like, what? And, and that next one. I sat there, probably took me two hours to do it, and I got it done. I showed it to him, and I said, here, I, I've got this racket done. And he looks out over, he inspects it, and he says, good job. He straightens out a few strings, does a few things, but he says, great job with it. And I mean, I got to the point, just to put it in perspective, where I could probably string a tennis racket in 20 to 25 minutes, you know, but that first one took me two hours. And, you know, you learn the learning curve effect, uh, which is a lesson that you learn. And so whenever they talk about it in business school, you understand what it is. But more importantly, Bob showed me the power of trusting people to do their work. You know, it's kind of this, I'll show you how to do it. I'll do it with you. And then I'll leave you to do it. And then I'll inspect it. It was very simple lessons like that that Bob was able to teach me uh, along the way. Uh, I mean, there were so many people, I think, also, I tend to think more in terms of the moral lessons that came along in my life rather than necessarily the the business entrepreneurs that I had. Uh, I had an eighth grade math teacher that sat down with me. This is at Shadyside Academy. And mind you, this is I'm getting ready to go from the eighth grade to the ninth grade from the middle school to the senior school. And Mr. Stifler, his name was Bob Stifler. And uh, it's a spring, I'm eighth grader, I'm feeling my oats. And Mr. Stifler grabs me. I could tell you exactly where I was in the school. He grabs me on a staircase and says, Kevin, you're acting like an ass lately. Now, that back then, you just didn't say things like that. He says, you're right. acting like an ass. He said, you're a leader in this school. There's a lot of kids that look up to you. I need you to start acting like the leader you are. And it just shook me because uh, I respected Mr. Stifler. Um, and in fact, uh, about eight, let's see, th- three years ago, I was at a birthday party for my brother who still lives in Pittsburgh, and Mr. Stifler was there. Oh, really? And uh, he, he was on a cane. He'd had a stroke. But I sat there and I talked to Mr. and Mrs. Stifler, whom I knew both of them. 
And I said to him, you know, he, you touched my life in a way. Now, I had written to him prior to that years before, but I finally got a chance to see him. I never thought I'd see him again to say face to face. This is what it meant. And the guy's tearing up and I'm tearing up. And, uh, you know, it's it's those little I think it's those moral nudges that we get along the way that that was a man who spoke into me and said, you are a leader. People are looking at you. You have a responsibility that comes along with that. Um, and I think, you know, as you think about the people that may be listening to this, you may not think you're a leader, but you are, whether it's your children are watching, whether it's uh, perhaps somebody that you report to, a customer, whatever's going on, how you lead your life is also going to be a reflection of how you lead your business. I think that is such a powerful story, and it's powerful in two ways. Number one, it's powerful in the way that it made an impact in your life. I had a very similar experience with a fifth grade teacher that took me out of class and, and told me that you, sh- you shouldn't be behaving the way that guy's behaving. You're different. And whether he meant it or not, or whether he observed it, I, I remember very clearly saying, wow, you know, I, I feel that way. And now somebody else has validated that. You knew you were probably a leader and, and that you just needed to be reminded to, to play that role. But I'll also look at it from the perspective of Mr. Stifler. And Mr. Stifler, how many, what did it cost him to do that for you? Like, what did it, it took 30 seconds? Yeah. 30 seconds of this person's life. How many times do you think, you know, I should say this nice thing to this person, or I should make this compliment to this person, but for whatever reason, you don't do it. And you don't know what kind of an impact people remember when you say things like that. I mean, it really, uh, I remember one time, uh, I forget who it was, it was talking about children and their apples. And, you know, if you, if you negative talk children and you, and you, you talk, you know, you talk them down, you know, all the bruises are on the inside and you don't really see them inside the apple right but the the apple looks fine on the outside mm-hmm. but but those those words just carry with those children and they bruise them on the inside and i think the inverse is true when you pour into people and you just take a moment just to just to make a true observation uh to somebody and give them a compliment it costs you nothing but it but to them they can carry that with them in your case for a lifetime mm-hmm. yeah very that really, powerful really made an impact obviously yeah well, super. Well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, and t- since uh, I just made an intentional, I, I just made a pledge for people to do something intentional, let's talk a little bit about being on purpose and the on purpose person. So you've got two books specifically about being an on purpose person. First is the on purpose person. The second is the on purpose business person. And we will be sure to link uh, these in the show notes and provide this information for everybody. But talk to me a little bit about how you came upon this thinking of being on purpose and you turned it into a, a really powerful body of work. Sure. Let me let me do a fast forward and close the gap between that and the books. So I, I go to Lehigh, I graduate, I get a job in, in Pittsburgh National Bank. Uh, I recognize that that's not a good career for me as a banker and wearing a three-piece suit. Uh, I go back to graduate business. Well, I actually go and take over a bankrupt business um, that was a bankrupt indoor tennis racquetball and swim club, which was a whole set of other experiences, uh, all great and uh, mostly great. How's that? And uh, (laughs) then I realized, hey, I don't know as much about business as I think I do, even though I've got an undergraduate degree in business. I wasn't paying as much attention, perhaps, as I should have the first time. So I go for an MBA. I apply and get to the University of Virginia. And I go to the Darden School, and I just love, love, love my Darden School experience. I, I actually said to the school, you're making a mistake. You should market this as the perfect entrepreneur program because uh, it teaches you to think like a general manager. So you have this more holistic understanding of what is going on inside of a business where a lot of people get a technical specialty like they have. They might come up with a sales route or they might come up with a finance route. But how you integrate all of that into a profitable uh, organization is a uh, uh, 
and, I, and I'm going to say profitable and meaningful organization is is it's a challenge. And frankly, it's a, a big challenge that I see a lot of uh, small, medium-sized businesses, business owners don't understand. They just know what they do to make money, uh, but they don't understand the larger holistic sense of what is happening. So uh, I have this Darden School experience. I graduate from there. I go to work here in Orlando, Florida at the Trammell Crow Company. I went uh, when I interviewed with a guy who was running the company at the time, a gentleman by the name of Don Williams. He said, where would you like to work? And I said, give me a new market, not an old market. I want to be where there's something entrepreneurial uh, rather than being in Dallas where the corporate headquarters are and you're just sort of working the market, a mature market, give me a new market. So they ended up coming into the Tampa Orlando market. I lived in Orlando. I was the second person in this market. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the idea of real estate, but then I transitioned from that. Uh, just didn't had some challenges with the organization, and there's some what I call it some ethical things that I just didn't like that I think are inherent somewhat to that to the commercial real estate business. Uh, and I started a greeting card company for business people, first ever. Uh, I beat Hallmark and American Greetings to it. I had business, a business line of greeting cards, but that I took a beating in that business, but I also kept my hand in the real estate. And so I ended up um, uh, as the president. Of, uh, I, found, I partnered up with a guy. We formed a company called United States Properties. I was the president of United States Properties. It was two guys, two secretaries. And um, we had uh, in the mid the early mid 80s, we had a, what today would probably be about a portfolio of about 50 to 60 million dollars for the projects underway. Mm -hmm. uh, back then it was maybe 20 to 25 million. So I'm just going to kind of double it for what it would be today. And uh, it, my business partner started to drink. Uh, he started to do bad things. Uh, I had what a friend of mine calls an AFGI which is an acronym uh, for another frigging growing experience. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that. Yes. Today I call, I actually have a program today that I call Tough Shift. You yes. have to say it slowly. It was a tough shift. Ah. And so I went through this tough shift. And uh, so, so that sort of brought me to my knees where I was looking at and saying, what in the world am I doing here? Why am I here as a person? Um you know, I was in my early 30s and having sort of that midlife crisis early. It's probably the best way to describe it. Uh, I was technically bankrupt, uh, never declared bankruptcy. Uh, but I, I began to say, well, I'm trained in business. I, I love strategy. I love thinking through all these things. So I sat down and wrote out a want list. What do I want for my life? I was married at the time and uh, began to really do the soul searching. And in the course of that, uh, some of the, the personal leadership development work that I had started when I was very young, like at 12, uh, and continued into my 20s, uh, I, I just recognized that in a lot of that work, whether it was Think and Grow Rich or As a Man Thinketh or The, the Richest Man in Babylon or you know some of these classic uh, old personal leadership development books, uh, they kept saying you need to know your purpose, but nobody told you how to know your purpose or let alone what purpose was. And so I began to do some real research on that. I got really curious about it. And I realized that the, the language of leadership and strategy is confused and it remains confused even to this day. And so uh, if your terms are confused, if you don't know the difference between purpose, vision, mission and values, if your terms are confused, then your language is confused, therefore your organization is going to be confused. So what I found back in the late 80s is a way to clarify all of that. And I had sort of between personal things and business things, I was like, you know, I should write this up someday. And so that really became the basis of the on-purpose person because I had this equation that I still use to this day, which is called the on-purpose principle which is the purpose of the person aligned with the purpose of the organization. When that happens, Jeff, you can imagine, that means your heart's in it, your, your mind's in it, you're, you're, willing to put your, you're willing to commit to it. And that, you know, today we talk about you know, employee engagement. 
Uh, employee engagement is just um, it's it's business talk. I, I appreciate the, the sentiment behind it. But at the end of the day, most of that is manipulation. But when the purpose of the person is meaningfully aligned with the purpose of the organization, it's called get out of their way. Uh, now, put strategies, structures, systems around them, give them training, do the things that are important uh, because you just can't necessarily leave it to chance. Uh, but that is the most powerful place to be for a person to be and for an organization to have people that are meaningfully aligned. So this this on purpose principle, the purpose of the person aligned with the purpose of the organization, the implication of that is then the person better to know their purpose and the organization better know its purpose. And I'll say purpose, vision, mission and values. Um, and so I really wrote the on-purpose person first because I said that's where you need to break into the equation. Because if the leader, as I said earlier, if, if the leader doesn't know who they are, then the organization is similarly going to be lost. Or that leader is going to put their identity into that business and they will operate out of a, a, a misplaced sense of identity, which often leads to fear, which leads to ego, which leads to all sorts of bad behaviors in the business. And so uh, I, I looked at it and said, let's get the individual healthy. And again, it's not just the, the business, but because I'm a business guy, that was my platform that I knew best. If I had been a psychologist, I might have done it as the on-purpose family. Because that's an organization also. Right. But that was the platform that I knew was the purpose of the person aligned with the purpose of the organization. And, and so then I wrote in six years later, I wrote the on purpose business person to complete that part of the equation on the business side. And uh, interestingly, I just uh, with the chief leadership officer book that I have, which I really consider to be you know, probably still five to six years ahead of its time. Mm -hmm. I was recently presenting to a group of CEOs, uh, the chief leadership officer stuff, but I integrated a lot more of the on-purpose business material into it. And remarkably, it was the on-purpose business material that they latched onto because 20, even though it was written 20, what, 22 years ago, it's actually now is when it's ready. <laughs> so it's, that's what it's, it's tough to be ahead of the market. You know, occasionally there's some products that come out that just can't be improved upon. Maybe that's one of them. That's I, awesome. Well, I don't know that that's the case. I can, I can always, <laughs> but I mean, I'm always improving things. But, right. uh, but, but it's the, very relevant today is what you're saying. What was interesting is that hit with them more. Now, these are mid-market CEOs, probably right. anywhere from 10 to uh 500 million dollars in revenues and it was it was the old stuff not the new stuff and so that was very enlightening for me to sort of see that in fact some of my older stuff maybe some of the, in, in terms of the market maybe right for what's right now right so a big part of purpose and i just covered this the other day on a podcast um is passion and really finding what you're passionate about and and it's different for everybody it really it really is it you know what we're passionate about is so unique to us but then incorporating that into our daily lives our personal lives our business lives is really where alignment starts to take off for me and i know when i'm working on something that lights me up and I've got all of the energy in the world and I can get up early because I'm excited and I can work late because I, I want to finish. And then when there's other things that you're working on that the passion isn't there, it just it's it's words on a page. It, it falls flat. How does helping people find their passion inside of purpose work in your model or how important is passion uh, to the process? Well, let me describe the relationship between passion and purpose. Purpose informs passion. Okay. So purpose is your state of being. It's kind of just the gift of who you are. And from that, your passion is identifying perhaps a vision that you have that is drawing you to it. Um, and then, because remember, and then let me define the word passion for you. So first, you know, purpose is your state of being. Then passion is what you're willing to pay the price to accomplish or to do or to achieve. So passion first means to suffer. 
And so that's why I say it's you're willing to pay the price for it, which in, is the great example that you use that most of us who are entrepreneurs understand is you wake up in the morning, you're not groggy, it's your eyes are wide open and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I got, I got downloaded an idea to me. I got to go capture it right now. I've got to go get that thing done. And you wake up in the morning and you're ready to run. And before you go to bed at night, you got to empty your brain of whatever it is. I got to get this done. I got to get that done. Or I've got to think through this project or this problem. I've got to talk to that person. It's the energy source that's coming through, but it's your purpose that's doing that. And interestingly, use the expression, Jeff, um, where I get turned on. And this in the on-purpose person, you may recall the light switch is the symbol of an on-purpose person because you're either on purpose or you're off purpose. And so I like to think of the light switch as what does it take to have that light switch put on a wall? But I, put a, I tend to put light switches over people's hearts uh, as though it's a wall uh, and say, what does it take for that light switch to be there on that wall in your office? If you're or in your it's the sort of thing where it takes a designer. If it's let's just take a building, it takes a designer, it takes a power plant. It takes an electrical grid. It takes somebody installing it. It takes uh, an electrical engineer to put it in place. And it takes an electrician to install it and make sure that, that light switch is there. So what you have is we are connected to something bigger in our lives than just ourselves. We are not an island. We are part of something bigger. Whether you want to call it the grid, call it God, call it the universe, call it what you may. But, there, but that energy is really coming from a source. And until one understands that source and how they fit to that source, we are disconnected from that. Therefore, life can feel meaningless or empty. And, and so what, pur what purpose does is it connects you more deeply to that source. Then from that source, you're now able to be a conduit for expression of that purpose and then that purpose is headed towards a vision and I'll just stay on the business side right now because you can have a vision for your life for your marriage for your health for your finances and so on and so forth one purpose many visions and then within that vision you're going to say well how do I do that so you know it, and sometimes this is just you know, like when you went to Florida with a storm when you were a young man because a storm came because of Hurricane Andrew, you didn't go down there with the idea of starting a, a remediation business. Correct. Right? You Correct. were just, you were on an adventure, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. But that adventure informed you. There was something about that adventure that drew you in. Yes. And, and, and so from that, there was a natural proclivity towards that. And that, that, that natural proclivity then, as you start to understand how you are naturally gifted and shaped and molded, now purpose, vision, mission, and values are the way to sort of articulate and document what is otherwise kind of ill-defined and frankly somewhat mysterious. It's interesting how we all have passion within us and then how does that passion manifest itself and how does it how does it reveal itself inside of us i'm uh, now that you said that i'm just thinking back to going to florida and i always had a passion to help other people and i always had a passion to um maybe it's the hero's journey or whatever whatever that whatever that is so it was just it was drawing me as soon as I saw the need for recovery and for help down there I was drawn to it I thought about it and then I thought wow and then I remember the vision of of what would it be like to to do this for my life for a career and I and people ask me later in my career hey did you ever think you would you would have a business that covered the entire country and you know, had all these locations in 37 states. And, and the answer was, yes, it's exactly what I thought about from the very beginning in day one. I, I had a, uh, one of my first employees was a subcontractor and he was working with us for six months. 
And one day he sat down, he got a cup of coffee, sat at my desk and he said, you know, Jeff, I come in here every day. I, I drink your coffee. I, I take the work orders. I go out and I do the jobs. I bring the checks back. I deal with the customers. He goes, do you think maybe I should just have a job here? And, and if, to hear him tell the story, I grabbed a cup of coffee and started telling him over the next four hours exactly what was going to happen. And this was in the mid-90s. And, mm-hmm. and exactly what was going to happen, exactly what the business was going to look like. It was so clear to me that what, what, we, were, what we were setting our hands and our hearts and our minds to do, uh, I just didn't think it would take this long, to be honest with you. <laughs> it's, it takes longer than you think. It's a, well, I mean, and, and you're fortunate because you have a product or you have a service that is needed today. So imagine I'm writing The On-Purpose Person in 1991, 1992, and I am imagining every person in the planet having a purpose in life, working in an on-purpose business. So mine is a intellectual, if you will, uh, or an intellectual property dream Okay, it's not like a, well, you know, there's not an immediate sort of how do you transfer that? How do you transact that? How do you what do you do with that? And so for me, I still have this vision of the on purpose planet where every person is on purpose and they're working or they're a part of an on purpose organization, whether that be a church, a business, a school, a family, a marriage. Uh, a Boy Scout troop, uh, whatever it may be, that those organizations would be there. So I've got this big, long vision that's going to be, uh, it's a whole lot longer than my lifetime. But uh, it is it is what continues to excite me. Uh, and so over the last 30 some years that I've been doing this work, I've just been filling out that puzzle. That's powerful. That's powerful. And, and you're, you're, well on, you're well on your way to doing it. I think if I can, one of the things that's really interesting, though, is what we both have shared is that we both saw the vision early. Yes. Okay. And I see a lot of people who don't have a vision for their business. It's it's a money making. It's a it's a way to make money. Now, there's nothing wrong with making money. I'm all for. I'm a capitalist. Okay. Um. But but there's their heart. They're in it for the wrong reasons. They don't have that vision or they have a very small vision of it and and or they have somebody along the way has crushed their dream to be able to have that vision or they crush it themselves or a, a family member does. I mean, I think that uh, you know, one of the things I learned uh, when I was in graduate school is how to go crabbing. And I love to go crabbing. And, you know, you get you go crabbing, you get a string and a little thing and you pull the crabs up and you put them in a bucket and there's no lid on the bucket. And it's usually like a five gallon paint drum that you use and you put the crabs in there and then you get enough crabs in there. And pretty soon uh, the crab, you see a crab claw comes out and it tries to get up and the other crabs pull it down. And so you actually, unless your bucket gets totally filled, these crabs are not going to escape because the other crabs hold them down. And, and to me, that is so much of, of why we have to surround ourselves with people who are not crabs. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Get rid of the crabby people. You know, it's, 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 it's that. And I, I just used to watch those crabs and just say, that is amazing the way they do that to one another. One guy, you know, one, one entrepreneur is going to escape the rat race, you know, no, or the, no, crab, no. the crab bucket. And, and honest to God, the rest of the family's pulling them in. <laughs> they don't understand. Well, I, uh, you know, there's a lot of naysayers when you're an entrepreneur. And it's too risky or you, you shouldn't try that. Or there's, I, I had somebody when I was going to start the business here in Charlotte tell me that, you know, all the good subcontractors are already working for somebody. So your business probably is not going to work. And to me, that was, uh, you know, I didn't have the, the head trash or constraints of conventional thinking that allowed me to entertain those thoughts. But I can see people really being impacted by what other people think and maybe taking some of their constraints and, and burdening themselves with those, that, that thinking. So, yeah, I mean, that's one, of interesting. The thing, one of the things I see a lot of people do to themselves who are maybe thinking about being an entrepreneur or are sort of halfway into it is what I call the Moses syndrome. 
And uh, if, if, if those people remember who Moses is in the Bible, it's like God calls him and says, Moses, I want you to lead my people out of Israel. And he sort of stammers and stutters. And he goes, who, 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 who am I to do that? And, and basically what happens is we end up with that same sort of question that we ask ourselves, which is, who am I to do that? And yet, uh, why not you? You know, if you've been called and you've got the passion for it, then why not you? I, I have always shared that if somebody else has done it before in any capacity, then I can do it too. That's right. So why not? There's always so I, room for one more. So if I don't have any original ideas, I can just pick somebody else's and run with that. And, there you go. And then, uh, you know, adjust on the fly. Well, you know, our, our show is is really passionate about entrepreneurial encouragement and informing other people's paths with the paths of great entrepreneurs like yourself who have seen a vision and applied themselves to it and committed to it and, and made a great business and, and really helped a lot of people along the way. So I think what would be helpful, if you would be so kind, is maybe just walk through the on-purpose person. And if I was going to order the book from after I heard the show today, like what, what would I expect? How would I use it? You know, how long would it take me to get through? What does that look like? Yeah, well, first of all, the book is a modern parable, which means it's a story. It's not a how-to book. So uh, there's the main character is called The Man. Uh, that today can have some negative connotations, but just go with it. How's that? <laughs> it's just a person. We'll get past that. And it, it could be the man or it could be the woman. And this man is uh, mid-career and struggling with uh, family, marriage, job, uh, all of those challenges that come along as we you know, kind of are early in our careers. And it seems like we're drinking out of a fire hydrant and everything's coming at us fast and furious as we're sort of building a life. And he, he really has that sense of I've lost who I am. And what really matters to me, why am I here? Uh, these sort of life, great life questions that he's pondering or asking himself. Uh, he remembers, uh, the friend of his tells him about a professor at a college who helps people. He goes to see this professor. That professor then gives him a list of people to call. And this man then goes through and visits with each one of these people, and each one imparts a certain amount of wisdom that is part of a process. So that process is first, because I'm a tennis player, you write down what you want. What do you want? It's called a want list. And then you put that want list into categories that I call life accounts, which most people would be familiar with. It'd be like finances, family, health, um, spiritual, intellectual, or slash emotional. Uh, so on and so forth. You take those want lists in those different categories and you put them into tennis tournaments and you're on a tennis tournament and say, what is most important? And what that process does, in addition to goal setting, it also is a values clarification exercise. So you start to say, because what's important is uh, your values and how you decide is based on that. So now if you understand the mechanism you were using behind the scenes to decide what's most important, you now begin to understand how you tick. And then from there, we do some time management, for lack of better words, I'll call it time management, uh, where you learn to block time, put your, put your, uh, put those, those core wants or those top wants into time so that you have an investment plan of your time, so to speak. And then from there, you sit down. Now that you've kind of cleared the decks, you now sit down and say, okay, let's answer these questions because I've created space for myself. And from that space that you create, and, and I guarantee if, you, if somebody just does the wantless and tournament process, um, the clarity that you will have, you will watch your life take a upward leap. It's, it's inevitable. That, that doesn't mean that bad things aren't going to happen to you. I don't want to state that because life happens. But your sense of understanding and knowing who you are, where you're going, what's important, and, and where to focus your life is, is a, a dramatic benefit. Uh, the same thing is true with your business. 
then you start to look at it and say, now that I've got some space, what are the deeper questions? Why am I here? Which is purpose? Where am I going? Which is vision? Uh, how will I get there? Which are the missions? And then what's important along the way, which are the values? Now that you are able to take those purpose, vision, mission and values and refine what it is you want, what, you know, kind of satisfying that, that first need and then be able to craft that and let it understand it better. Now, what's really cool is today I, we have a tool that's called onpurpose.me. That's a website. So it's just www.onpurpose.me where somebody can go in and actually uh, in about three minutes find their two word purpose statement. And so because that was always the biggest problem. And again, Purpose is answering that, why am I here? Or it's your state of being. It's unearned. It, it just is. It's kind of like your spiritual DNA. Your physical DNA exists. You didn't ask for it. You didn't choose it. It just is. This is kind of like the spiritual DNA, understanding just kind of who you are in that sense at, at this mysterious level. But when you put words on it, it's kind of like what electricity was when Benjamin Franklin first looked at it, put a kite and a key up in the air and said, whoa, there is something here. Uh, now, I'll call it, we call it electricity. Once I can name it, now you can harness it. Once you right. can harness it, you can put it to work. So it's these and you can fashion it. So today you have this kind of we're in this world of almost like where uh, where Benjamin Franklin was, where electricity was not readily available was well, I was in the sky. How do we capture that and, and put it to use? I think we're there almost at the same place in the terms of the spiritual understanding of what purpose is. We're at the infancy of that. So uh, that's why I say purpose is easy. Being on purpose is hard. That's the hard part. Now, for most people, if you don't know your purpose, you're, it's like you're wading through a swamp trying to run a race because you, you're lost. And, and so now when you get to purpose, it's like, wow, here's a clean track to run on. Now I need, but that doesn't mean it's just laid out for you. You got to plan it. You got to be strategic about it and you got to think it through. And so that's what the story is about, is how to go from this transformation. Actually, I almost call it transcending your own life where it is today, being able to see it for what maybe, if you will, through God's eyes almost. And, and I don't say that. I say that with a great deal of respect because we can't know God's mind or eyes in that regard fully. But we can at least know that we can be in a partnership. We can conspire with God rather than, rather than working against it. Okay? Um, and, and from that, now you end up at the other end. And then what's really fun is once you get to the other end of that, you can go back over and repeat the process. So the beauty of the book is, is yes, it is a process with a story, but it's a, it's, a, it's a process that once you learn it, just like, just like me with the stringing tennis rackets, the first time it might take me two hours. But by the time you're done with it, you may be able to go through this entire process a year or two years or three years from now in 20 minutes. And you're and all of a sudden you're that fast with it. You're right back you're, on it. So you're processing it. But mm -hmm. I still say use paper and pencil, even though we've got electronic tools and all of that. Pull out the paper and pencil. There is something about that, I think, that's meaningful where you really it sort of captures it. But, but that's the, the, the nature of this on purpose process that's there. Fantastic. Can you share with us what an example of a purpose statement might be? Yeah. Uh, again, two word purpose statements. They all have a generic beginning and it's a little misleading, but it says I exist to serve by and liberating greatness would liberating be an example. Greatness. That's great. Yeah. So an ING word and yes. then another word. It's two words. So it's liberating, which is uh, I was liberating. I am liberating. I will be liberating. So from an English point of view, it is past, present and future. And then there's an object, which is greatness. Uh, other examples would be like igniting joy, awakening worth. We see a lot of people think purpose statements are actually mission statements. So they'll say, well, I'm to be a school teacher that teaches English in junior high. That's a mission. Or I want to be a great father. Well, that's, that's a value that you would have within your family dynamic. Uh, but if you're a great father, what does it mean to be a great father? If your purpose statement is liberating greatness, you look at your children, you say they have greatness designed into them. My job is to just give them the keys so they can, they're liberate, they can help liberate their own greatness. 
powerful. See, so instead of just being a great dad, it's very specific and you understand that's how I'm uniquely designed to be a great dad. Or if I want to have a great business. What does my great business do? It liberates greatness. And again, it could be any business, but if your passion, going back to your original question, if your passion is around kind of the restoration, somehow you're called to that. I wasn't called to that. I was called to write books and to, to communicate this. But I can be liberating greatness doing that. I can have the same purpose statement as you, Jeff, and we can be living give totally different expressions of it. I see that. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Thanks for asking it. Yeah. So just a, a couple things uh, left. I'd, I'd like to know. So what's your take on plan B's in life? Do you have a take on a plan B? What do you, how do you feel about these? Well, I think that um, it's well, there's there's two there's two aspects to it, I think, that are important. I, I think that it depends if somebody is like if they're radically different plan B's, um, then it's um, you may have divided loyalties. It's kind of like, let's put it this way. Jeff, when you got married and you married the sweetheart of your dream, what was your plan B? <laughs> if you had a plan B, but you yeah, my have plan a very B good was to make plan A work. That was yeah. my plan B. And that's my point is at some level, if you commit, you commit. And if you don't have, if you have a plan B working simultaneously, then you're in trouble. Now, within plan A, as long as you've made this major commitment, I think that there's a benefit to having scenario planning. Yes. Where you say, if this doesn't go, then we have that. If this doesn't work, you know, we're flexible and agile about what we're doing, but we're committed to plan A. Now, there's a certain point in time as entrepreneurs where if a business is not working, we have to face it. We may have to face that and, and deal with that plan, uh, which becomes a new plan A. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't know. What's your take on plan B's? Well, I think, um, you know, I'm not big on them. I think, I think that when I'm working on a plan, I'm always open to what's a variation on the theme of a plan. So it's if, uh, you know, and then sometimes, you know, if, if I'm sure you've had projects that you've worked on and you've started and you just said, you know what, this isn't on purpose. This really isn't aligned. Now I've I've learned about it and uh, I'm going to abandon it. But I think I think it's all everything that I've done has been towards a direction of freedom through entrepreneurship, of learning new things of trying to surround myself with great people who light me up and who, like yourself, who just have wisdom that is so applicable to my life and, and that's aligned. I like to be around people that are, uh, that are yoked with my values and that, uh, you know, that, that have an interesting take, have a positive, healthy take on the world. So, you know, inside of that, you're going to try to do a lot of things, but I think it comes down mm -hmm. to purpose, right? So, so there is, you know, the, the things that we do, maybe we're on a mission today. And, uh, you know, if we decide that that mission is not aligned with where we ultimately want to go, then that doesn't mean that we're, you know, that doesn't mean that it's just a learning experience. So, absolutely. Um, you know, I've, I've never felt like I've ever deviated from, you know, trying to be the best entrepreneur, the best husband, the best father that I could be. So I think maybe even before I was exposed to the book, I, th I think I had a sense of what was important and, you know, what, what I would tolerate and what I wouldn't. And uh, so, so I'm not sure. Is that that's a pretty good non-answer. I think for you, <laughs> I, no, take I, I think that's actually, uh, well, I, I think that's, I think we're of a like mind of it, actually. I think yeah. that I, I think the way you described it is it's variations of a theme. Yes. But it's not, it's not that the theme changes. No, and, and every, everything's not going to work. Yeah. And, the, that, and see, this is what's really important when you go back to purpose, vision, mission and values. Okay. So you have a purpose, you have a vision and the missions can fail and succeed, but it doesn't mean that the purpose and the vision are wrong. Right. So you can lose you, the battle and win the war. That's exactly right. And, and so that's, I think, the hard part is to say, when do I put a fork in it and call it done? But that doesn't mean, for instance, if you're about liberating greatness, there's a different way I'm supposed to be liberating greatness. And, and so the new chapter is opening. 
And, and so there's that optimism that's always there. And that's not a plan B. That's just there's a certain amount of reality that the market is going to tell you certain things, particularly as entrepreneurs, that this is working or this isn't working. Yeah, I think there was I'm not sure if it was Jim Rohn's quote, but he said the easiest direction to ride a horse is the easiest. The easiest way to ride a horse is in the direction that it's going. <laughs> but if the horse is dead, get off. Yeah. And I'll tell you a funny horse one. Okay. He's talking about wisdom. I had Shady Side Academy. I had a teacher who was somewhat famous. His name was Mr. Bob Abercrombie. Ah. And he was an old, crusty guy from New England. He was probably my age now, mind you. But, uh, but he used to say, Boys, remember, there's more horses' asses than there are horses' heads. <laughs> and I and I thought, you know, there's there's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Well, as we're as we're getting towards wrapping up, tell uh, just share with us how you work with people today and the kinds of things that you're doing, so people can know if they're interested in learning more from you. Like, what are the what are the things that you do to engage with people today? Well, I, I think the most important work that I do is helping people know their two word purpose statement. Uh, the same with the organizations. So we actually help people know their purpose, vision, mission, and values, uh, how to put together a plan for bring, giving that expression, whether it's an individual plan or an organizational plan, or the integration of those plans. Uh, and for entrepreneurs, what's really fun is when you take the purpose of the person and then you can also take that same purpose if it's a small business and you can bring that to life in that business. So your personal purpose and your business purpose can be one and the same. Um, so it's really fun. And, and because you can get to purpose fast, it's such an easier process now to build a business from sort of a, a really deep cornerstone or build not even the cornerstone, but building it on rock instead of sand, that that cornerstone is laid truly on rock and you can build from there. It just makes a world of difference. And, how, and you do that through engagements or yeah, seminars? Well, we do that through education, you know, whether it's coaching or uh, workshops, uh, consulting work. Uh, for, usually that's for companies. And then for individuals through coaching, uh, materials that are published. Uh, today we're doing a lot of online virtual uh, programming, uh, getting ready to do more and more of that. Sure, sure. Well, you're, you're easy to find and great to talk to. Uh, and I appreciate it very much. Uh, so last question, if you could tell any aspiring entrepreneur and you could encourage them to start doing just one thing today that will impact their trajectory and help them become successful, what would that be? Know your purpose. Know your purpose. Know okay. your purpose in life. All and right. let, it, let it inform your business. Great. I appreciate that. Kevin, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you for taking the time to pour into our guests, our, uh, our, our listeners. And I'm very grateful uh, to have you kick off our show. And uh, it's been very meaningful for me. So I can't thank you enough for being here. Well, thank you, Jeff. And just uh, much success to your podcast. Uh, I know that everything that you seem to put your hands on turns out good for people. And that's why you are a successful businessman like you are, because your heart's in the right place. You're going to make mistakes like we all do, but, but bottom line is your heart's in the right place. Uh, you know, you judge people not by their actions, but by their intent. Yes. Yes, I appreciate that very much. Uh, and if, uh, if our audience is interested in learning more about you and your work, tell us where the best place to find you. Uh, they can just go to onpurpose.com onpurpose.com. Great. We will link all of Kevin's work in our show notes and the things that we talked about today or anything but we that we referenced. And thank you again, Kevin, for being here. And until next time, away we go. Thank you for tuning into the Jeff Duden Show. Interested in learning more about something I referenced in the episode? Check out the show notes for links to content and more. If you enjoyed my podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. Until next week, you can find me at jeffduden.com. Thank you for listening.